Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Underserve, the podcast for the rest of the tech industry. I'm your host, Andrew Jelina. I am lucky this week to be joined by Colin Raposa, VP of Resource Management at Syrinx Consulting. He's the guy in charge of finding everyone when Syrinx needs to expand and bring more technologists on board. So Colin, welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Andrew. You've been recruiting for quite a while, a lot of it at Syrinx, but you were even before Syrinx, but in a different industry. What was that like kind of coming into the tech industry? Correct. I had done building engineering, so architecture, uh, mechanical, HVAC, plumbing, much different. Let's put it that way. Much, much different. Sounds it. Yeah. That was much more of a... It's funny because the, the pay rates were actually similar. We were looking for high-level building architects. So it, we've, as you and I both know, we hire a lot of people outside of the tech industry, and it's, it's a challenge. It's a ramp-up when they're coming from staffing where it's commercial in a warehouse, and it's just a completely different type of skill set, type of person, type of... You're type saying for a recruiter or a salesperson co- correct. to get used to e- this industry. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that takes time. So I was lucky enough that I was already dealing with very high level skilled laborer. Uh, so it helped, it helped me definitely in this industry, being able to, to pick up software development skill sets and figure out the difference between .NET and Java and JavaScript. And, uh, and, and that was, that was, uh, it was good that I had that recruiting exposure before. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, you did the boot camp where you come in and kind of get the fire hose on the yes. technology industry. That was key. Anybody that we hire now, that's the first thing I tell them. And they always ask, how do you handle the ramp up? What'll my first couple of days be like? What if I don't know the exact skill sets that Syrinx hires for, et cetera? Yes, the boot camp that we do that is run by our software engineers. And a lot of times we get you involved for that boot camp to do a crash course on this industry compared to others. And then specifically what we do within, within the software development industry. Mm-hmm. So I know that recruiting has definitely changed over the years, you know, to give some ancient history back when I was at Monster in the turn of the century, you know, the, the individual job boards were kind of at war with one another. There was Monster and Career Builder and Hot Jobs all kind of vying for the general employment market. And there was niche job boards like Dice, who just dealt with consultants. If you were in the uh, staffing industry or a consulting industry, you probably had subscriptions to Monster and a Dice and maybe multiple other boards. And you would search a lot on those boards for people. The boards would kind of tout themselves as, well, we have X million candidates that are all definitely active or, you know, in these industries and so forth. And job postings definitely, at least in, you know, the software industry seemed kind of secondary that you were searching for people that, you know, you could pay 295 bucks to post a job or whatever, but Eh, like you, you tended to just get people throwing the resume against the wall for that. How would you say that's the landscape has changed in more recent times? I think it's changed a lot. So I started in 2011 at Syrinx. We did a lot of job boards at most of the searches that we did, even for Java developers back then, or somebody who was, had a very skilled big data skill set. We were still finding those folks on job boards. A lot of times now, people aren't the, the engineers that we're trying to hire, their resume is not posted. B- 
because there's so many recruiters in the industry that are just crushing those job boards but with specific skill sets that it, if you post your resume and you have the right buzzword bingo on that resume, you're going to get absolutely hammered with phone calls and emails. And it's not going to stop because there's 50 companies within a 50 mile radius of Boston that are looking for the same type of jobs. So if you're a, a skilled engineer with a, a modern uh, technology stack in your resume, you almost need to be careful because you can waste a lot of your time and miss out on good opportunities just by posting your resume. Uh, some people might not know that. So I think to answer your question, a lot of the t- a lot of what we do now and the best people that we find is folks who apply to the postings that we have. The postings that we have, ZipRecruiter nowadays, Indeed has made it, the ZipRecruiter, the aggregate job posting, just being able to post on one and having it pushed to several different specialty job sites. I think it's made the recruiting, the tech recruiting industry very easy, uh, or easier, I should say. As you know, we still have DICE licenses. We still have monster licenses. A lot of the folks on those job sites that for, for the industries that we hire are, are, are typically jumping around uh, uh, quick job stints, and it's not the type of people that we, we usually want. Now, what about LinkedIn? Like way back when, you know, no one used LinkedIn for recruiting. Yeah. It was looked at as like a Facebook for business, sure. if you will. And I know they wanted to monetize it very badly yeah. and wanted to make something out of it. And now they are able to sell relatively expensive seats. And mm. it's almost, it seems like it's become one of the dominant places if you are going to search and contact sure. people. Where are you looking? They have absolutely crushed job boards. Um, I'm sure they're going to put some of them out of business as Monster definitely struggles now, as, as we've seen from a revenue standpoint. But LinkedIn Recruiter specifically is their, their most expensive product. Uh, it's obviously targeted towards the recruiting industry. Now they are building an applicant tracking system into that. They charge roughly $10,000 per license, uh, which is ex- more expensive than any job board that I've seen. Mm-hmm. There's no competition there. They have made LinkedIn has done an incredible job of of taking the Facebook social network, making it for professionals and then monetizing in mails. That's really what they've done. They have now said, OK, anybody can sign up for LinkedIn and it's free, but we're going to limit you to I think it's 10 in mails per month or maybe 20, maybe 30, depending on why, what, when you signed up. So for those who are not familiar and haven't been on this side of LinkedIn, a lot of people go on LinkedIn, you sure. know, basically post their resume, if you will, on there, like a copy of it with the same sort of timeline and maybe connect with a few people and kind of forget about it. So if you've, if you've linked with people, if someone has accepted your connection request, you can send them a message and there's really not much friction to it. You just, you know, pull them up in LinkedIn, send them a message. You don't have to know their email. It's kind of like a, a Facebook social network in that way. You know, it's easy to stay in touch with people who may move from job to job to job and you may not know what their active email is, but you got a shot at reaching them with the LinkedIn messenger. If you don't know a person, but still want to send them a message, LinkedIn has made that into a product called InMail where you can send a message to someone you don't know, but how does that work with like the returns and whether or not they accept it and what goes on with that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I believe that if, if I am sending, you're an engineer, I'm a recruiter, I am sending you an in-mail, you can obviously reply, say you're interested in whatever opportunity I'm throwing at you. 
Um, if that's the case, you usually get that in mail back from a monthly standpoint. So if I send, if I'm limited to 10 per month with my free license, as long as you respond to, if I go to get 10 follow-ups from that and people say, respond and say, yes, I'm interested, then you can continue to recycle those 10 over the course of the calendar month, whatever that may be. Um, your other option as I'm sending it to you as an engineer is you reject it. If that's the case, you lose that in mail. And I think they even monetize it that if you go 0 for 10 or God forbid, 0 for 20 over two months or 0 for 30, I think there's a point where they can actually shut down your in mails, which is really what they have to control. So it's not recruiter robots going on uh, and just blindly sending messages that people have absolutely no interest in. Mm. So, so they, they kind of regulate it in that you had better be somewhat targeting people who want to hear what you have to say. You must have a halfway decent message. Correct. Instead of just spamming Correct. people and hoping that, you know, playing a numbers game, hoping that one out of a hundred responds. Correct. Absolutely. Because remember, these are, these are in-mail messages that if you have their email address, you'll probably just send them an, e- an email. Mm. But a lot of times with, especially in the recruiting world and, and what we do and in, in usually high-level software development skill sets, you don't have their email address. You do not have their phone number. These people are not posted on Monster or Dice or Indeed. So this is your only way to contact them is this in-mail, this lucrative in-mail. So you need to make sure you throw your best pitch out there because else you're just wasting your time and then literally wasting your money. What LinkedIn Recruiter has done is they, I think they cap you now at two, they used to be unlimited. So if you paid for your your big LinkedIn Recruiter license, your company paid for it or individual, that you would get unlimited in-mails, right? That's basically what you were paying for and unlimited network as well. So that's one thing that we skipped over, Andrew, is what LinkedIn has done a great job of too in order to monetize it even more is if you're not a first or second connection with the individual then and you don't have a paid subscription, you can't even see their profile. So if someone's third degree and I search, they won't come up or? Typically, and they always, they change these to try to monetize it as much as possible. But yes, now a lot of times if you search and that person is third degree, depending on what your search is, a majority of the time, you, that person will not be visible to you. Hmm. That doesn't mean you can't send them an in-mail. That means you literally can't see their profile. So you, you have no idea that they exist. You don't even know if you want to send them an in-mail. Correct. Yeah. Yep. You don't even know if they're there. And that's why in order they take that and they say, okay, if you want to know that they exist, which recruiters want, they want to see the whole pool, then you have to get them. You have to get some type of recruiter license. There's different levels. I think they have recruiter light. That's maybe, you know, maybe 1500 or 2000 for the year. And they have a few in between, but the, the ones that you really need in order to have the best chance of finding the best people in the quickest amount of time is what they call LinkedIn, yeah, LinkedIn recruiter, LinkedIn corporate. I think their marketing has changed recently. Okay. Now, actually, a, a pro tip for the job seekers, um, if you are posting your resume to a job board, want to be contacted, but, you know, anecdotal story, I have friends who have posted a resume and gotten 140 emails in a day sure. and an almost as many phone calls. You know, you can obviously sign up for a Gmail that you use just for job hunting, which a lot of folks will do, uh, or there's also other free mail services. Although, make sure you have your cell phone ready 
to verify those email services because now almost every free email provider is requiring you to be able to respond to a text message mm -hmm. to make sure that you're not some sort of spam bot signing up for free email accounts. The phone number, there are services now too where you can sign up. You get basically a temporary phone number that people can call and it forwards to you and tells you their caller ID, but they don't have your real number. So when you end your job search, you don't have to <laughs> cancel your cell phone sure. and get a brand new number. So uh, if you're in the tech industry and you expect a big response rate, you might want to consider one of those. Yeah, no, I, I think that's key. As a recruiter, I'm biased. I would say the opposite. Don't, don't do that so I can get a hold of you more easy. But no, yeah, no, LinkedIn, LinkedIn corporate or LinkedIn recruiter has, has changed the game definitely from a recruiting industry. It's, they make it very challenging to find skilled folks if you, if you don't have it. And there's no competition for that. Almost every single software engineer, and then I, I also add into that any software development skill set. So technical business analyst, uh, quality assurance engineer, technical project manager, et cetera. Almost every single one of those people, and then probably everybody who's listening to this has a LinkedIn profile. Mm -hmm. What's the percentage that they have a DICE account? or an Indeed account, or that their resume is active right now on some internet website. Mm. Probably very slim. Um, if I had to guess, I don't know, maybe under 10% out of that population. So LinkedIn has no competition. They can almost name their price. Hopefully nobody from LinkedIn corporate is listening to this, but we complain <laughs> all the time because LinkedIn Recruiter, which the LinkedIn app that's free that you can download, most recruiters probably have it, is, is good. I, I think it's a good app. It has most of the features that you can use from the, from the web app. LinkedIn Recruiter app is, is terrible. And it's the one that they're paying for, that their customers are, are paying the most for. It's not even close to what their, their app is that the customers are not paying for, which is very interesting. Now, you mentioned a lot of folks will have a LinkedIn profile. It's almost become, if you will, social proof. Sure that you are a legit, real person, that you are a technologist that's actually connected with other technologists. In fact, you, I think you've mentioned there's some clients who don't want to see folks that don't have a LinkedIn profile. They've sure. just been burned one too many times by fake this and that sure. and say, you know what, I, I want that as social proof, just as much as a Yelp review might yeah. prove that a restaurant's decent, having a LinkedIn profile proves that you're a real person. Absolutely, 100%. And it's not even some of our clients require it. We now, from a recruiting standpoint at Syrinx, we require it. Unless there's a bizarre circumstance or you have a great excuse, we will require it almost all the time. Uh, it's just become that exactly what you said. It's it's become validation of your resume. And I don't mean what you did at each company. I mean more along the lines that you worked for that company and that the dates of that company match what you have on your resume. Now, I know Google or Amazon, they're probably not uh, any big company. They're not going through LinkedIn every day and making sure that every single software engineer that ever worked there actually worked there and the dates match up. But it's a step towards validation that we're not able to get elsewhere mm -hmm. right now. Now, speaking of validation, you know, background checks, you know, were once kind of financial services insisted upon it. Some others now you do them for everyone. Yes. That seems like it's become very pervasive in the industry. Not, not so much. You know, I doubt you get many hits on criminal or, you know, civil or whatever, but 
they do check everyone's employment dates now too and make sure you're not fudging your resume. Yeah, a- absolutely. Especially in the contract world. And that's a majority of what we do here at Syrinx is, is we're doing uh, usually 12, we try to do at least 12 month contracts. And that means somebody who's been in that game for a while, they might have 10 jobs in 10 years. And that doesn't mean they're bad at what they do by any means. But in order to validate that, a lot of these companies want to know that that was legitimate. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's uh, yes, you're right. The, the, the employment verification as part of the background screen has become uh, also important. So that dovetails a little bit into another topic uh, that you mentioned before we got on air. Being full-time versus being a consultant, salaried versus hourly, what are some of the differences? Sure. You know, is there more or less loyalty on one side of the fence or the other? What do you think? I, I love this argument because you can honestly go both ways. There's no right or wrong answer. My argument from being a in, on the technical recruiting side of a, major, of a company that does majority contract and consulting business, my argument right now in this market with, with, with what we do with, with software development skill sets is stability is no longer the major difference between full-time and contract. It really isn't. If you are good at what you do, and for senior level folks, people who have seven, eight plus years of experience, they know if they're good at what they do and what skill sets they're better at than most if, or not better at than most. If you know you're good at it, then you can find a job right now. It is a negative employment ratio in Massachusetts. And I think nationally now for software related jobs, there's just not enough applicants for the jobs. Co- exactly. One, exactly. So if you're good at what you do, there's a job out there and companies have now caught on to this and they don't care. Usually if you're full-time or contract or contract to hire, they want to get the best people in the door in the most efficient way possible so that their company can continue to build products and scale. And this changes. We saw this fluctuate shortly after, uh, I'm sure, 08, 09, when a lot of companies were nervous and, they, um, and maybe they didn't want to hire full-time because they didn't know if they were going to have the budget or, or resources or whatever in a few years. But even right now in a stable economy, they still want to hire contractors because the, those contractors know that they can typically make more money than they would make full-time. They can typically, with companies like a Syrinx and some of our competition also offer good benefits that are competitive with what they would get from a medical standpoint, which is very important, especially in a state medical, of Medical, dental, yep. matching 401k, short-term, long-term disability, the usual suspects. Correct. The, the mid-size contract consulting companies like Asyrinx, now a lot of them have to offer that to be competitive. Uh, you know, I argue that w- what, is the, what is the difference? We have this argument with people all the time, and some people, I completely get it. The term full-time is very important to them, but what does that term really mean? If you're good at your job in this industry, you're going you're gonna to be employed. They're going to keep you around. And if you're not full-time or contract, they're probably going to let you go. Your argument is that the market creates stability, that there's so much demand out there for someone with a good skill set, assuming you're halfway decent to good to very good at what you do. Sure that there should always be some sort of work out there for you. So the old, you know, go into IBM and work there for 30 years and retire and get a gold watch just doesn't, you know, really ring true. I know when I was entering the workforce in 95, I I saw that dying. I saw the pension dying. I saw the, you know, unwritten contract between employee and employer dying. Sure. 
And it seems like this market-based stability, at least in the technology industry, is what has kind of replaced it. Now, I'll, I'll go just for the heck of it on the other side of the yep. feds. We've talked to some folks, you know, hands-on keyboard technologists, as well as executives who kind of have a perception that, you know, when I'm full-time somewhere, I feel more all-in or I feel more committed or I'm eligible for equity or there's other things that kind of, you know, intrinsically make me feel more part of the company. To counter my own argument, I've seen places where consultants are treated very similarly to the full-time folks. They, you know, can go to the kitchen, they can go to the same events, sure. they can do all the same things at the company. Maybe they don't have equity participation and, you know, that company's benefits and that sort of stuff, but they have most of it and, you know, are able to kind of enjoy most of the same things um, as the full-time folks. Absolutely. And, and you bring up a good point about how you, you mentioned working at IBM for 30 years. I think that has definitely changed in this industry. But what's important when you have an economy, a market that supports these contract engagements that engineers can nowadays almost pick and choose what they want to do from a technology perspective. And in software engineering, it's, it's completely out of control with what technology is going to be the new modern one that what's going to be the next react js the modern javascript framework or what's going to be the next swift or kotlin or go almost four or five years ago none of those technologies existed so those people never had that skill set as when you're a when you're a contractor or a consultant you're able to identify let's say every year or two you know, even less six to twelve months you can truly act as a hired gun within technology stacks that are up and coming. Whereas if I'm a full-time employee and I've been at the same company for 5, 10, 15 years, I'm probably working on applications that were built in J legacy Java or .NET stacks, and that's all I know. I don't know any of the modern JavaScript or uh, big data or mobile or cross-platform tools that have been built and that are constantly evolving. So that's one of the arguments that I wanted to mention with contract versus full-time is, is you're really able to kind of target where you want to take your career from a specific technology standpoint. Underserved is fortunate to be sponsored by Syrinx, the developer-founded, developer-run software consulting company. Colin, tell us about why developers might want to work at Syrinx. Are you in the software consulting industry and sick of posting your resume just to get bombarded by recruiters? They tell you all about opportunities that aren't even in your skill set or even where you can commute to? Looking for a contract role in this market is a full-time job. Let Syrinx do that work for you. This is what Syrinx has specialized in for the last 20 years, both in the Boston market and beyond. Are you a full-time employee that is considering consulting options to have that best of both worlds compensation model? Do you want more remote flexibility or do you want to choose that specific tech stack you want to work with? Perhaps you want an increase in pay, but you're stuck in a compensation freeze at your current job, or maybe you just want to be that hired gun that every company needs to ship products and scale. You can email us at apply, that's A-P-P-L-Y at syrinx.com or call us at 888-5-SYRINX. Spend your time writing code and let us handle your job search. Contact us today at syrinx.com. Yeah, I would also say that from the engagement lengths too, which, you know, could be as short as three months, could be a year, you could get renewed. You could sure. be somewhere multiple years. 
But in general, you know, you're probably going to see a few different companies in a decade as opposed to one. Yeah. You get to see best and worst practices at these places. You get to cross-pollinate your skills with all the folks that you work with at client A, go to client B. You can show them the tricks you learned at client A. You're going to learn a few more at client B. And you kind of tend to cross-pollinate these skill sets, pick up things you might not have otherwise. Something as simple as shortcuts in an editor or whatever, or something as significant as an entirely different way of looking at something or a brand new methodology that makes you a better developer. So I think that's one of the less heralded benefits of being a consultant. And, you know, let straight up, if you're hourly, you know, crunch time comes along and it's 50, 60 hours, you know, or more in a week to get a release out then that's generally reflected in your next paycheck if you're hourly. And it's kind of nice to have that show up and, you know, be able to make an extra mortgage payment or pay off some credit cards or something like that. Whereas in a full-time job, you're kind of, you know, for comp changes, you're waiting for a bonus to come, or maybe, maybe it's tied to your performance. Maybe it's tied to the company performance. Maybe you kicked butt, but the rest of the company didn't. That can kind of get lost if you had to put that extra effort in and then nothing really came out of it. A lot of people kind of rankle at that over time if it happens over and over. Yeah, and I'll I'll even, I'll I'll give you one of the more common devil's advocate arguments that we get when we're we're saying, you know, what's the difference between contract versus full-time is what if there's a layoff? The assumption is that contractors are always going to get cut first. The facts are that we've seen the last couple of years when there has been company downsizing, they haven't. We've had full-time folks at a client and consultants at the same client where the full-time folks have been let go and the consultants have been extended. And every company is going to evaluate those in different scenarios. But that's a common assumption that I don't think is accurate all the time. Yeah, I, I would agree. Some folks that we know, like hiring managers and executives at companies, will keep X percentage of their technology workforce contingent so that if there is a downturn, they can cut off the consultants, keep their core employees and make it so their glass door ratings aren't going through the floor. Sure. Others say, all right, who's contributing the most here? And I don't care whether they're full-time contract, part-time, on-site, remote, whatever. We want to keep the best people chugging and, you know, we're going to kind of look at everyone from an ability perspective and make cuts that way. Or, you know, some just say, all right, We've decided that the mower height is X, and if your salary or what we're paying is above X, you're going to get mowed. I would say it's not so cut and dried anymore. I definitely agree with that. I, so I, I threw in there remote versus on-site. Oh, sure. What have you seen in trends for both full-time folks and contract folks from a remote perspective? What works and what doesn't? It's a, it's a great question. A few years ago, I would have said that we're starting to see more companies have more remote flexibility. But since you're asking me this question today, over the last six months, I've seen that flip the other way. A majority of our clients and people I'm talking to in this industry are saying that they need people on site three or four days per week, usually four or five days per week, and that they're willing to lose engineers that are probably good enough to get the job and and contribute to their team. They're willing to lose those folks if they are not willing to do that commute. In my opinion, the companies that'll do 
not even 50-50, but let's call it three days on site, two days off site. Those are the ones who typically get the best people. We do not come across a lot of folks who are who say, hey, Colin uh, or uh, XYZ, I'm 100% remote. Uh, I'll travel once a quarter, once a year. But those people are, they're extremely limiting their options. Um, the engineers that might live in southern New Hampshire or they live in Plymouth and it takes them an hour and a half to get to Boston every day. I, I think companies understand that if they're good enough to get the job technically, that they're willing to have some remote flexibility, but not all remote flexibility. I think much like offshoring, which was initially seen as a panacea of, oh, it's great. We pay so much less per hour for sure. this thing. And it must be cheaper than paying four times that per hour onshore. That there are hidden costs and road bumps that come up with remote work that you have to manage. Um, with offshoring, it was, you know, managing someone 12 time zones away, potential language and cultural differences, yada, yada, yada. Even with people that, like you said, live, you know, Plymouth or Southern New Hampshire close, but aren't in the office every day, you definitely have to make an effort to have that same sort of collaborative feel and instant question answering and ad hoc meetings the sort of things that tend to happen when you're in an office together. You can all huddle around a whiteboard and hash something out quickly. I want to know what Joe meant when he checked in this module and how should I use it? And is it okay to extend this part? If we don't at least have some overlapping hours, like we've seen a lot of folks go say, all right, everyone has to be online 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And what you do outside that to make up your other two hours or whatever, we don't care. But there needs to be some overlap so that if I ask you a question, you're actually sitting there at your keyboard and sure. I can get it back or we can hop on a Hangout or a WebEx or something. Uh, I've talked to one of our clients recently who said, yeah, we want people in the office at least three days a week. We can't do the full remote anymore because we're having too hard of a time managing that. And there's some other clients that are like, yeah, you don't have to be here at all. Yeah. Like, you know, as long as you're cranking this out. And they have the right mix of people and collaboration where they can pull it off. But I would agree that it doesn't just work for everyone, but a lot of employers almost feel pushed to offer remote because they're all competing for that talent pool that we just said that there's more positions than people. Sure. So and one thing I'd add to that too, is I don't think there's a difference with when it comes to remote versus on-site, I do not see a difference between contract versus full-time. I think it's a company culture thing, and they, most of our clients, at least, it's the same. Uh, they treat their consultants like they treat their full-time employees, and uh, that, you know, that parlays into treating them the same when, they, uh, when they're allowed to work from home or not. We, we, have, a lot of, uh, we have a lot of clients that, that, like I said, that want people there four or five days per week. And what I have to tell people who don't want to be in the office but are very interested in the opportunity in the company is, uh, it's almost, trust me, like, go through the interview process, see how much you like what they're doing. And from my experience with the majority of these clients is if you're able to ramp up, you're able to prove yourself, you're able to gain credibility amongst the organization, then you'll be able to ask for that remote two days a week instead of one, three mm -hmm. days a week instead of two. Once that trust is built up, it's a lot higher to go in there when I show up to the onsite interview and I put my feet up and I say, I know I'm good enough for this job. So can I work from home four days per week, even though you've never seen me do this job and you have no idea who I am yet yep. and you don't know how good I am? 
devil's advocate from the other side of that. Maybe you've got kids and you got to pick them up at three sure. and your wife can't do it every day or your husband can't do it every day and sure. you got to make that work. So it is tough sometimes to balance your obligations with things and you may need it out of the gate. But like you said, it's a lot easier conversation when you've gone in, done the onsite, proven yourself made a good relationship with everyone, have a good rapport, and then start backing it off to onsite rather than trying to do it right out of the gate. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about something that most employers seem to love, but most employees just don't seem to fit quite into this. You know, it's like a square peg in a round hole. Mm. Contract to hire. Oh, interesting. Yes. Give me your thoughts on that. I used to say when clients would tell us that the type of engagement they wanted was contract to hire, I used to say you are extremely limiting your talent pool. There's a group of people that want to be consultants and there's a group of people that want to be full time. And there's a tiny group in the middle that are willing to do contract to hire and take their chances. Nowadays, a majority of our clients usually have full time openings that they are not able to, to, to find the right folks for. And then they're willing to hire traditional consultants, uh, folks that have not been full-time at a company for several years and that are typically hired as hired guns. They're willing to hire those people and then take their chances that in six to 12 months, they'll be able to convince them that they should be a full-time employee. And it goes for the recruiting side as well. When I am telling a consultant who only wants to do contract and doesn't want to ever convert full-time, when I'm telling them I have a great opportunity with a client that would prefer that you eventually convert full-time, it goes back to that trust conversation where, trust me, this company, if you're good at what you do right now, they've been consistently growing over the last several years. If you don't want to convert in six months, they will probably keep you on as a contractor. And if you do want to convert because they change your mind on full-time versus contract and they make you a great offer that you can't refuse and you want to give up the whole consulting lifestyle, then that might exist down the road. So it's almost like getting your foot in the door with a company because and this goes back to the first thing that we covered on this podcast about, about contract versus perm is they, they just want the, right, they want the best people for what they do on their team. And typically they don't really care too, too much about the type of engagement that their structure, the structure of their engagement. Mm -hmm. So Contract to hire is not as big of a deal as I used to think it was. I used to say, clients, don't do that. Just pick one. Just look for full-time or look for contract. What about another one that we used to always say was impossible? You know, like I used to get the, in the financial services industry, we want someone that has Java and .NET, or we want someone that really knows the full stack, that knows front end, back end. And we used to be like, just no, just create two recs. That's sure. two separate people. Go do that. What have you seen from a combination of skills perspective or people broadening their palette, if you will? Uh, definitely become much more specialized over the last five years. Um, it's, we hardly ever see a true full stack engineer position. It's either a React engineer or it's a, a, or it's a .NET developer. And when they say that, they don't mean a .NET developer who uses Angular on the front end. Or they mean a .NET developer who primarily works on the mid and back tier, and then they have a separate engineer on that team that is doing doing the Angular work. Oh, so they have gotten the meshes. They haven't. They haven't tried to combine nine different skill sets into one. Correct. First. I think it's finally working, but I think they had to get the message because it was so hard to find because of what you said. 
they couldn't find it. So it was a waste of time. And the people that they were finding that said they could do full stack development were kind of specialized in whatever they might be. If they're a, a really good Angular person or maybe they're much better with SQL and they focus on the back end. So it has, in my opinion, become very, very specialized in the the full stack engineers are out there. They are definitely out there and they have become a hot commodity because there's not as much as they used to be. Now, a lot of the content we do here on Underserved is timeless where, you know, we're talking about things that, you know, have happened a long time ago or are historical. We don't make a lot of predictions, but as a snapshot in 2019, just for the heck of it, what are some of the hottest skill sets that employers are asking for and or developers are trying to skill themselves up in? Folks who are ex- who have extensive experience with React JavaScript, React JS is still, it probably has been for the last 18 to 24 months, still the most common request that we get. So many clients are trying to convert their front end from some type of legacy uh, Flash Flex to some type of modern JavaScript, usually React, sometimes Angular 2+. So uh, React and Angular 2+, are, are two of the more common ones. We also get a lot of clients, it's funny to, to kind of stray off a tiny bit to the last point that we were talking about. A lot of these customers, they no longer care so much about the full stack, but no matter what part, what front end, back end your focus is, you have to have some type of cloud experience. Mm. You have to have exposure to AWS cloud services. Mm-hmm. That's almost taking over that full stack experience. So a lot of the, when we get on and we qualify requirements with hiring managers, that's, you know, usually one of the questions we have is, hey, you mentioned every AWS service in this, uh, under the sun in this job description. Does that React developer really have to know that? Don't you have a separate team of cloud engineers or site reliability engineers that are going to specialize in that? And the answer is usually no, they don't. But if they have it, it's a nice to have. And would you say that AWS is still the 800-pound gorilla? That's the most common one, not a lot of Azure and no. Google Cloud and so forth? Uh, yeah, no to Azure. Um, yes, AWS is still the dominant player in that space, in my opinion. A lot of Azure, but it's funny, even some of our traditional .NET clients, they use AWS. Mm. We have some big clients that, that use uh, GCP, Google Cloud Platform, hardly ever see it. Mm-hmm. I've read articles recently that they're they're growing, but we don't. I don't see it in the in in the enterprise space right now. What about other hot JavaScript frameworks? I've seen Vue.js making a little bit of a rise. Done a little bit of coding in it myself. Sure, yeah, I think Vue is taking a run at React, uh, and I am not an engineer, but uh, from talking to a lot of engineers about it, it sounds like it's a. If you know React, it's easier to pick up than a majority of JavaScript frameworks, especially going from Angular 1.x to Angular 2 plus. Uh, so yes, I'd actually like your opinion quickly on how hard it was for, for you, somebody who had exposure to React and experience there, to pick up Vue and then be able to do it in a job. So for me picking it up, I got the luxury of having someone lay out a framework and then I got to kind of copy, paste, modify, break, fix, and get into it that way. So there just knowing some javascript basics and some react basics it wasn't bad um and i was able to start painting outside the lines and do some other stuff and get components working across pages and so forth but there were definitely still some things as far as like the wiring up and how everything worked together it it worked really well so we had a firebase back end on that one so the data could change out from under you 
um, in the Firebase and everything would just automatically update, which is kind of cool. Something I first saw in React and that works well in Vue. There are some not so straightforward things to it. Yeah, if you're coming from React, you're going to know. But if you're coming just from a more vanilla JavaScript background, the concepts take some getting used to. Somebody like yourself, do you consider yourself a full stack engineer still? I know back in the I know back in the day when you were getting you know into the industry, you had to be a full stack engineer, right? So if I think about web tech, a lot of us were quote unquote backend guys. That was modulo database. There are actually guys that just uh, did what we would call a DBE, database engineer, someone who was designing tables, writing stored procedures, et cetera. And the relational database is somewhat of a black box that you would code against it and, you know, make some calls to it. And maybe the DBEs would help you with queries in order to make them efficient and so forth. But then you were really doing quote unquote business logic in the quote unquote middle tier. And then there were front end guys who were you know, either in a Java swing type thing or, you know, HTML, JavaScript and CSS doing the front end. So for a while there, we were slotted into the middle. I personally always was curious about the other tiers and wanted to know how do I do everything? Even the, what we would call now DevOps today. Um, you know, I was talking to the guys here, we were doing a fantasy football league this fall. And I was like, oh, we used to, you know, back when I was at Monster, I bought a server with like a couple processors off eBay and I built a whole system for managing our football picks pool and it would automatically update and go out to Yahoo and get the stats mid game and refresh the page with your statistics this is all before Ajax or any of that stuff. And in order to do that, I had to figure out how do I provision a server? How do I install the hard drives? How do I install a database server? How do I script all the tables in? How do I get the data in? Then how do I code on top of it? Then how do I actually host it somewhere and get it to perform and, you know, do the front end as well and trade some favors with some graphic designers so it didn't look like crap. Like, so I was curious about that whole stack front to back, but a lot of folks would stay in their hole there. And then I think full stack became more of a thing where you had to know at least something about all the layers. Um, but from now, from what you're saying, I think there's been a snapback to more specialization. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting to hear that point of view though, from 10, 15, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, was there as many technologies that were hitting the market that were as widely utilized? So there's technologies coming out almost every, you know, every few weeks that it seems like major companies are using them to build and then scale their platform. That didn't exist two years ago. Yeah, I would say there were fewer and slower moving things, you know, like there was Java and .NET and open source was getting, you know, pretty big then, you know, PHP, the LAMP stack, but it didn't seem like there was the velocity that there is now. I mean, there's a new JavaScript framework every other week now, sure. and you got to decide whether or not you're going to gamble on it for the long term from a architecture perspective. Is this thing going to be supported? Does it work well with my stuff? Can I train people to use it? Or am I painting myself into a one-off corner where no one's going to want to work on this in sure. a year or two? And then hopefully uh, my company's going to scale. Am I going to be able to find enough people that actually know what they're doing so I don't have to keep training everybody? Mm. Is there other companies using this technology? Yes. Uh, so that's, yeah, no, I think that's key. And it's not just, I think we see it most prevalent in JavaScript technologies, but uh, we have a lot of Java clients that are now writing their next-gen platform in Go or Kotlin or 
uh, Python, uh, some companies. And I don't think there's as many engineers as experienced in those skill sets as they are with Java, as there are with mm-hmm. Java and .NET. So it, it makes it fun for sure from a recruiting perspective. There's always been a thing in engineering, you know, the best tool for the job. Sure. And I think you really need to insert the best tool for the business. Like how, how am I going to find people to work on this two years from now? Do I think this is going to be a winner in the marketplace, even if it's not necessarily the absolute technical pinnacle of what we need or the best solution in the marketplace? Like who's going to win? I, I, it's yeah. hard to predict. I couldn't agree more because you're talking to a lot of people in the space. It's maybe Elixir, right? Has the best processing power for the consumer facing web app that I want to build. But am I going to be able to find 30 Elixir experienced engineers in the next 12 months that want to work on site in Boston? Or even grow them. Or yes, or or even, yeah, train them. Because you'll have a lot of folks that, you know, that that might be in your organization now that just don't want to learn Elixir. And I'm just using Elixir Mm. as an example. Uh, So yes, I would definitely replace the word tool uh, with with business. That's what, yeah, I think that's what you said. So there's certainly, as we mentioned, more positions than folks. While every company hires everyone that, you know, is from the United States, you know, that has a pulse and can do the job in technology, uh, immigration's definitely become, you know, more to the forefront because we just don't have enough folks here. Sure. And we're not churning out computer science and other technical grads fast enough to sate the job market. So talk a bit about immigration and some of the challenges and skill sets that you've had to build up as a recruiter in order to help facilitate working with folks. Sure. When I started at Syrinx, we did a lot of visa transfers, a real lot. Uh, And most of our clients would consider folks who were on an H-1B. They would not prohibit to green card or U.S. citizens. So we did a lot of H-1B transfers. And the transfers, we would do premium processing. So within 15 days, we would typically find out if everything worked out. And it always did. Uh, in fact, I've never had, and we've never had any issues since I've been at Syrinx from a, from a processing standpoint. Uh, I think since, uh, in this current, um, the current president, Trump, I think he's made it very interesting because even though there hasn't been a lot of changes to laws that have gone into effect, he has spoken, uh, at depth at some points about threatening to change those laws. Mm-hmm. Um, he did change premium processing and RFEs are definitely way up, but there, ha- uh, there has not been a uh, significant change from the immigration law standpoint, but because of all the talk around it, I think several of our clients uh, have now changed from being more open to hiring H-1Bs full-time or contract. And they now are saying we want folks who have citizenship or green card status in the United States. Because we don't know how things might change 100%. from an immigration visa perspective based on current and future administrations. A hundred percent. That is exactly right. Yeah. Um, they are they are scared of what's going to change. And if they have 10 or even 15% of their workforce is on some type of visa. That's a major problem if eh, somebody wakes up one day and says that they're no longer, you know, their their visas expire and they can't renew or they, the green card status changed. So you have a lot of folks going back to India. It's a major problem. And there's been a lot of talk around that. So there, there's certainly been a ton of rhetoric around it. Sure. 
uh, you know, all over the place. And, it, you know, that immigration gets wrapped up in, you know, all the other immigration stuff that comes out, like, you know, securing the borders sure. and so forth. And I'm a little surprised that Trump, who bills himself as being very pro-business, you know, hasn't gotten pressure from the Facebooks and Teslas and everyone of the world, like, hey, actually, like, we need these folks in order to power the development and innovation we're doing. We'll hire everyone here, here that we can, but there's just not enough folks. I think he has felt that pressure from the big Silicon Valley companies um, and some of the companies out here in Boston, but because it, even though he's talked a big game, a lot of those, a lot of the laws that would have the biggest impact have not gone into effect. And I'm sure it's because of the argument that you just said that he's realized if I want these, if I want Apple and Facebook and Google to have their major centers in the States, then I'm going to have to allow some type of immigration for certain skill sets. And I'm not saying for every skill set, but for specialized software development skill sets, it's absolutely necessary. And until we have a major employment change, uh, unemployment change in this industry, I don't see how you can change that unless you want these companies to move more and more jobs overseas. Any uh, last tips you have for software developers to help them through the recruitment process, help them be maybe less intimidated of talking to folks who are, you know, maybe a lot different from them who are the recruiters of the world? Sure. Ask Every software engineer has a friend that has worked with a recruiter that they like. They might not love them, but they probably like them. Maybe that recruiter impressed uh, that person. So ask other engineers that you trust for a trusted recruiter. And you do not need to post your resume any, anymore. You can be picky. So don't post your resume and have 150 recruiters reach out to you and waste your time. Go through a trusted recruiter with a company that has a good chunk of clients that have of interest for you, and that person should be able to help you out. Um, that's a majority of the recruiting that I do nowadays. It's not going on job boards for me, who's been doing it for 10 years. It's not even, I'm not that active on LinkedIn Recruiter anymore. It's leveraging the network I've built over the last 10 years and asking that network for referrals. And if you have a hard time finding that recruiter, just apply online to jobs? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because the, yeah, search jobs you're interested in. Mm. There's plenty out there. Every company nowadays is posting. And I don't just mean going to their dot careers page. Just search on the web on in, in any way and it'll take you to recruiter postings for contract. And there's all specialized sites now and, and the jobs are all out there online. And to my main point, leveraging, leveraging a recruiter to do that job for you. A, looking for a job, preparing for interviews, getting through those interviews, especially all the code tests, which maybe we can get into in a later podcast. Mm. Uh, that's a full-time job. Looking for a job is a full-time job in the software engineering industry. If you want uh, you know, to consider multiple opportunities, mm -hmm. let a technical recruiter who's experienced do that job for you as much as possible and make your life easy. Sounds good. Well, thanks once again, Colin, for joining us today. Definitely appreciate all of the insight into the industry and your experience. And we look forward to having you again on Underserved very soon. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. The podcast studio looks fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.